0: Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined with Robert Fry. And today I'm really excited to share with you guys our conversation with Rob Gray. Um, We ended up having a really good conversation and asking um, or touching on a lot of different subjects and through the conversation, um, some of them didn't get um, addressed or talked about, but Rob's podcast, you guys should definitely check it out. He covers all these sort of topics uh, that we didn't have time to dive into. So, for example, um, I brought up uh, the uncontrolled manifold uh, hypothesis or analysis. And if you want to learn more about that and to why uh, we have it as part of our uh, logo, um, you should check out Rob's episode 100, um, which is on functional variability. Um, and in that podcast, he, he talks about the uncontrolled manifold analysis. Um, additionally, if you're wanting to know, uh, which episodes to check out of Rob's, um, some of my favorites are episode 140, an ecological approach to anticipation. And then, um, additionally, episode 154, new sport, sports, eye movement research, um, so those are some great, uh, episodes to check out, um, along with all the rest. But, uh, if you wanted, um, some of my favorites, uh, that's, that's what they are. Um, additionally, uh, at the end of the podcast, Rob, um, brought up a, uh, book that he recommends. Um, we'll have a link for that in the description as well. And, um, just to preview that, uh, the book is how the body knows the mind or sorry, how the body knows its mind. Um, And so, yeah, um, Robert, were there any uh, things that you uh, wanted to add uh, with regards to Rob's podcast today?
1: Yeah, Rob and us had a great podcast talk and uh, I can't wait to share it with you guys. We talked a lot about in terms of Applying research methods for some skill acquisition and motor learning theories. So, can't mm-hmm. wait for everyone to listen in.
0: Yeah. I mean, we just, we, we wandered through a whole bunch of different stuff, including uh, VR um, and then just common. Um, Common potentially like misconceptions uh, with regards to some of these ideas, um, and then also rob's views on specific things like decision decision making in sports um, to name a few things, and then two, um, we also encourage you guys um, to check out rob's patreon for his podcast. Um, I really like it from the standpoint of um, if, you, if you're in the second tier of support, you get access to all of his um, transcripts, which I find super helpful um, to be able to go back through and um, easily find things that I remember hearing, um, such as the uncontrolled manifold uh, analysis. And so um, for me, that's been really helpful. So I encourage you guys to check out Rob's Patreon and uh, support him on there. So I hope you guys enjoy our conversation today with Rob Gray. Let's begin. Analyzing
2: Finding
1: the
0: edge. Rob, do you want to give us a little bit of background on yourself and kind of how you got into um, field of study that you're in uh, with regards to motor learning
2: yeah so I did my PhD in psychology Um, I was mainly focused on perception side of things on vision in particular how we kind of perceive information about moving objects like when an object's coming at you how the time to collision the direction it's traveling and I was really mainly focused on on just the perceptual side of things. Really, a lot of the studies we did back then, we the subject, the participant just pressed buttons to indicate a response. So I was always kind of felt something was missing, and that's kind of when I discovered each ecological psychology. I read Gibson, and the idea of you need to keep perception and action together really resonated with me, and so. After I kind of did my graduate school, I really uh, wanted to move into the area of VR and simulation. And so I, over many years, developed a, a bat, baseball batting VR uh, for uh, mostly for research purposes. It was used in a training study uh, a few years ago. But um, so I, I kind of got into that, understanding how, both because I think I, I'm interested in sports and baseball, but I also thought baseball was a really good study type of sport to bring into the lab because you know where the hitter is you know where the pitcher is things aren't moving around crazy so um so i developed that and have done a lot of research over the years and, and and more recently got really interested in the skill acquisition motor learning how batters acquire the skill and how that changes to based on the way you train them
0: so you brought up vr i think that's really interesting, especially when we're talking about baseball because there's now more technologies out there for um, baseball players to use. And I was talking with somebody yesterday and they were they mentioned your study and the fact that you were able to in one of your studies get look at um, how auditory and tactile um, feedback, Influence the swing, and part of your setup, I believe, um, included that. How did you incorporate that into VR?
2: Yeah, so so one one of the really before that one of the real reasons I started with VR is um, when I started, there was no really easy way to precisely control the flight of the ball. They didn't mm-hmm. have these fancy pitching machines, and more more importantly, for my purposes, there's no way we could measure there was no track man or stat cast. So we couldn't know exactly what the ball was doing. So, without being able to control the stimulus, you know the perceptual side of things, I, I didn't think I would be, it, I might've been took a different path if I had all that now, but um, mm, so it wasn't, mm-hmm. I didn't really, so VR was the way I thought I could control it. Yeah, so what I did with that study is, um, so obviously I'm sure most people can imagine what the visual, you know, there's a projection and uh, you see a pitcher and a ball and, and you hit it, the ball goes on the screen. The auditory actually, I, I went on, uh, this was a, quite a few years ago, I recorded, Went on the field and recorded contacts, you know, solid <laughs> contacts on the sweet spot versus near the handle. And um, what well, what I did was play them. It was quite, I can't remember. There was like seven or eight of them. We played them in the simulation, de- depending on where the, the calculated point of contact was. So, if you hit it on the handle, you would hear hear a sound like a, like a, you hitting on the handle. And then I also took little um they're called tactors that get kind of like inside your cell phone that gives a vibration mm-hmm. and i and i put them along the bat. they're much stronger the ones we used and put them on the bat, and basically the same thing if, if you hit it right on the sweet spot there was hardly any vibration if you um if you hit it on the handle, you get a bigger vibration, not, not as big as, of course, you get with the real thing, which can be painful, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, so it was kind of a crude simulation of, of these different perceptual. Uh, I found the tactile one uh, was particularly important. And I think that's kind of missing from a lot of the, the current ones is I had a, when I, every time I brought hitters in they'd say your simulation looks nice, but I don't, when I hit the ball, I don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that, that that made a big difference to our simulation.
0: I guess that kind of actually answered my question in terms of um, maybe what are the potential, I guess a good follow-up would be what are some of the potential benefits of using VR and then what are the limitations of using VR?
2: Yeah, I think think there's some good potential benefits in both kind of in training ones and in kind of in test and evaluation, but you kind of have to be careful. I, I think a lot of VR developers are focused, in my opinion, are focused on the wrong things. Hmm. Um, they're hmm. focused on fidelity. They're focused on how good does that picture look on the on the field and the f- flags hmm. blowing in the wind. And um, hmm. whereas when I develop my VR, and I'm focused on. So my my philosophy is you shouldn't be using VR to try to recreate and replace the real training. You, you'll never hmm. will. Hmm. Real training will always be better. What you should use it for is to do things you can't easily do in in, in real training. So. What I what I tried to put my in mind was worry less about fidelity and try to take advantage of the fact that, for example, variability. So, like hitting against a pitching machine, I could do that in the VR, but I can change the pitch type every pitch and vary the Mm -hmm. pitch speeds, and also I could change it adaptively. So, if you keep missing every pitch, I could slow them down. If you keep if you keep hitting every pitch, I can speed them up. So. Being able to change things and switch things easily um, is one of the big advantages I see with with using VR. Also, you can occlude it, you can put in picture recognition inside of it and and things like that. So I think it has potential if people focus on that aspect of it um, instead of trying to replace real hitting. Um, the other things, you know, uh, uh, the Dave Mann and the group in Amsterdam are doing some great stuff, using it to evaluate batter's eye movements to see how well mm. they can track the ball. Um, so so I think as a diagnostic you know, evaluation tool, there's potential. But it still has a ways to go, definitely. I know a lot of people look at it and they're like, oh, that'll never work. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Because I think a lot of them, as I said, are kind of focused on the wrong thing.
0: I guess my question to follow up with that, there's like two directions I want to go. one is the representativeness to which you kind of touched on and the other part is that that's all that has to do with that is you know from your study of perception and vision, how does the difference between a virtual environment and our ability to perceive depth depth perception um, and just I guess kind of how our vision works in actual reality versus, virtual reality, what are, are there differences? And what kind of differences are there? And how does that affect the representativeness?
2: Yeah, that, that's a good question. It, it seems like in terms of actual hitting, you know, seems seems almost any action we perform, we use a really small set of information sources, right? So as, as long as you get those right, you usually can recreate that. You have pretty good representativeness. So mm-hmm. as long as you can create the looming uh, of the ball, right? The, how it expands as approach you. Um, whether you know whether you use stereo binocular cues combined from your two eyes and hitting, um, we we found that you can use it, but um, that's what kind of the VR the head mounted displays kind of give you as well. Um, so at first you look at it and the picture doesn't look at the right distance and and things like that. I know, mm-hmm. and so people think, oh, the information's wrong, but uh, that 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 information although you you see it is is kind of actually irrelevant to a lot of the hitting, because we know the information you're using is very simple information like tau, the the rate at which the ball is expanding. So as long as you get that right, uh, usually you're you're okay in terms of representing the information.
0: So I guess on the sort of information side, um, if we're talking, and I asked Sean this question, uh, I believe yesterday, but like, if we're if we're thinking about like specifying information, what are we talking about there? And is it different than talking about invariant um, variables?
2: Uh, they're they're kind of related, one and the same. Yeah. The, so by specifying information, we need we mean uh, information that gives you the 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 variable, the quantity that you need. To to perform the task right, so to hit a baseball, I need to know when it's going to get to the plate, right? I need to know time in some way. Um, so that's that's what I I, I need to uh, specify. Um, and for example, when you hit off a pitching machine, and the pitch speed is the same every time, an info you can just use how you know you can know when the ball just out of the p- pitching machine shoot, I can start my swing. So I can mm-hmm. time my swing based on that source of information, but that's we don't call that specifying because in the game, that's not going to be there, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, when, when things start varying, it's no longer specifying and no longer gives you the information you need. So in, in a sense, specifying information is invariant. It, it gives you what the value that you need uh, across a, a wide range of variations. So like tau, the change in expansion of the ball, Tells you when it's going to get to the plate across a range of speeds. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're softball, baseball. The pitching mound chain distance changes; it's invariant across those 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 changes in the environment.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, then is it too that specifying information may be contextual? So, for example, the specifying information that an athlete uses in a pitching machine situation is non-specifying when you go back to, um, the, the actual competitive event.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sometimes we call it a, a range effect. Um, so when mm-hmm. you limit the range of conditions in practice, you can make, uh, um, information useful for, for what you're trying, your goal in that small range, but then it becomes, not you can't use it anymore when you expand to the real uh, condition Mm -hmm. so yeah you're exactly you're exactly right so that you have to be really careful of doing that they can lead to you know what we call negative transfer right where you you get into if you try to use that strategy when you get to the competition it's not going to work anymore
1: so then when does kind of that too much information become a situation in that training environment where there is too much information and then? instead of becoming a benefit it becomes a detriment
2: yeah i think it's it's you know it's good in a sense uh, having all that information there to you know because it's potentially distracting to the batter right having the crowd present in a in a vr and um so i think but i guess my uh, issue is with with putting too much emphasis on making it perfect right uh I, I I just don't think it adds very much. Um, so I don't think it's a problem necessarily having too much of it. I think it's just putting too much effort into creating it is, is, is not a good use of resources, I think.
0: So I'm kind of curious how if we're, since we're talking about um, specifying information and information sources to, for for people to connect their their actions to, um, I guess maybe it's good to start with, What sort of, what are, what do you think people are missing when, when they're thinking about these things and, and or misconceptions? And then to, to kind of pivot that, how does then these information sources and whatnot um, influence decision making? And what is your view um, on decision making and what does that mean to you?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, information sources, so I guess I would start with two things. You know, there's the specifying ideal ones that, um, you know, they're specifying that we will want you to use, and then in many cases, especially with a less skilled athlete, there's ones that they actually use, right? And so what we could, you know, the process I'm sure you've talked about on here before, attunement is getting... Mm-hmm shifting and kind of becoming aware and your attention on this, on different sources of information. So, so a batter, right. Although we want them to use the expansion of the ball to tell when it's going to arrive, they could potentially use some other information. You know, the, the height of the ball as it comes out of the pitcher's hand, maybe, you know, that's, it's, it's a hump, it's a curved ball. It's coming out really high. But, so it's potentially the case that, that many other performers are using other information. So I think it's useful if you can somehow in, in your design and by analyzing it, look what your athletes are doing and notice, oh, this pit, this person always swings at this type of high pitch or this person. And, and you can kind of almost qualitatively or, or even quantitatively, so oh, they seem to be using this information to time their swing. And then that's when you can jump in with some sort of manipulation in practice, you know, kind of constraints led manipulation or trying to, to get them attuned to another source of information, getting them to the, the more specifying one that you want. Um, that's kind of what we're, we're aiming at in, in practice. Do you want
0: to kind of um, explain uh, your understanding of the constraint led approach and potentially um, some misconceptions about the constraint led approach?
2: Yeah, sure. So. The um the constraints that the idea of the constraints that I put is is to the, one one of the misleading parts, of I think, is in the name, right? Uh, mm, some mm-hmm. people take it very literally, like we're going to, okay, let's strap <laughs> the <laughs> athlete's arms together, the hitter's arms together, so they have to swing with two arms tied together, right? That's a restraint, not a constraint. Um, that mm-hmm. could be a constraint if you want, but um, the, no, the idea of, the, of a constraint is to somehow change the practice environment um, and to kind of either get the athlete to find another coordination pattern or tune to a different information source. Um, you know, so um, an easy one, you know, in, in baseball, I could, you know, if I, if I had a condition where a batter was always, um, you know, in, in swinging at pitches that were high because they thought they looked hittable and you wanted to change them, you could put like a, a bar or something in, in front of them saying, don't swing at pitches above that or, You know, you can uh, add if you have a picture that a hitter that's losing balance. You can add a constraint of don't step over this object when you're hitting. Um, So the idea is to uh, kind of you're adding something to the practice environment in a principled way to kind of change something about what you want to what you want in the environment. It's just it's not necessarily restraining and and not letting them do something. Usually, it involves some aspect of taking away something that they did before. Um, and it's not just adding variability for variability's sake. Right. Um,
0: right. Yeah. I guess to, um, sorry, Robert, I want to quick add <laughs> something here with one of the things that um, Rob, you've talked about on um, Stuart Armstrong's uh, talent equation podcast that I really, really liked was the idea of constraining to afford and um, just so to, to recap, affordances being like opportunities for action. Mm-hmm. And maybe too, it's it's worth to kind of delve into that because recently I've had um, st- I, affordances, I think, play heavily into decision making. And so having a proper understanding of what we mean by constraining to afford and and then like opportunities for action, do you kind of want to go into, into that just a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. I, I think a good example, and I I, could, you know, I think you could easily put this into a baseball context, is, is um, the recent study by you know Tim Buzzer and Damien Farrow and colleagues looking at a scaling of equipment for kids. So mm-hmm. in tennis, if you, if you let a, a kid try to play with an adult racket and an adult ball, the ball bounces super high, and it's they they can play, but they're you know they're not very efficient. So giving them a smaller racket and a ball that's less compressed, so it doesn't bounce as high, that's a constraints manipulation that uh, gives them more opportunities, um, uh, gives them uh, lets them get to the ball better, hit it, have a more optimal up to a down to up swing path stroke path, and so what you're doing is actually. Take, changing the task constraint by changing the equipment, um, and you're giving by and you're giving them these more opportunities for action. What you what you see when you do that, and their their study, new study is really interesting. You not only do they have a better stroke and hit the ball harder, but they also play balls. They're more aggressive. They play balls in front of the line more. They hit more winner. They attack more. So they're getting they're seeing receiving more opportunities for winning winners and things like that. So by adding this new so that's a good example too that you're not restraining anything. You're you're just changing the equipment. Yeah. You're adding a different constraint. So you could do imagine doing the same with a kid in baseball, giving the smaller bat, you know, a lighter bat, and in, in, in the same thing.
1: Because yeah, that that kind yeah. of brings up kind of like the uh, the recent like weighted bat approach uh, that kind of some schools teams use where they use kind of a heavier bat to. Uh, manipulate those kind of constraints, and then a lighter bat to help with optimize swinging faster. Um, But uh, I want to ask, like, quantitatively, using kind of these constraints, how are or what are some ways you can kind of measure the differences, you know, either without constraints or a kind of variation of constraints?
2: Yeah, so I, I think that that's a really good question. I think it's something that people struggle with is, you know, I think the key to me is you're putting in a const- a constraint is, as I said, it's not variability for variability's sake. That's more differential learning approach. But in a constraint, you're you're trying to change something specific. So say you had a batter that um their bat speed is, you know, kind of slow, they're you know, and they're having to really get out in front. To, ahead of pitches to catch up with them, and so they're 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 not giving themselves enough time to pick up the pitch, and they're missing a lot. And so, adding a constraint of a lighter bat, right? You might do that so you get a more optimal, you know, kind of swing where they wait back further because they can generate a faster bat speed with a lighter bat. So. In that case, what you're looking for is the thing that you were hoping you would change. The swing starts a bit later, the bat speed's a bit higher, they're better at recognizing pitches, do the curveball versus passball, because they're taking more, they're seeing it for longer. So you know, you knew what you wanted to change with the constraint, and you look for that, right? You don't, that specific, like like in the tennis one example I gave, they were specifically, one of the things they were specifically looking at is the swing path, of the tennis stroke. That's one of the things they were hoping to change with the equipment. And that's what they actually measured. So having that kind of not just looking for p- performance outcome measures necessarily, but also these kind of process things.
0: Cause I, I think too, one of the things that when it comes to constraining to afford that really stood out to me is Rob, when you were you were talking about it with, with Stuart was this idea that like oftentimes you need constraints to actually be able to um, do things. So for example, if I give you too open ended of a question, it becomes hard for you to figure out what you want to answer potentially or what to say. But if I give you a, a little bit more of a constrained question, it actually allows you to give a, a much more um, detailed and interesting answer that allows you to go lots of different places. And so to me, this idea of constraining to afford is, is actually about giving people options and the ability to to do things. And so when, when we're talking about, say, for example, baseball, and it being a dynamic, um, sport that's changing, we, and that there are a lot of different, um, situations and problems that the athlete will be able or need to be able to, to solve. It's trying to figure out how to utilize constraints to help that athlete become more adaptable to the situation. And so I guess the, the question that I have when, to bring it back to decision making is if we're trying to constrain to afford and affordances are these these things that like you were said before where the athlete is accepting the invitation to swing at a pitch that's up and in but they don't hit it well and or they're missing it it seems like they're accepting that affordance but really that to they actually hit a ball that's away much better and they're rejecting that affordance how does that play like how do we think about uh, affordances in the sense, do we want to improve his ability to hit the, the, the affordance that he is accepting, or do we try to figure out how to get him to reject that affordance that he is currently accepting and not, um, performing well with and get him to accept the other affordance that he is rejecting?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think a way to put that, I would put all that is what you want athletes and performers to have are well calibrated, Affordance mm, perception. Mm-hmm. You want their performance, their perception of the affordances to be calibrated to their actual action capabilities, right? So do you want them to perceive that's a hittable pitch when it's actually in a location that they can put a hard swing on it um so that's a matter of kind of linking the two calibrating the two which is it's not always easy right um one of the ways that i was talking with someone about a few months ago an idea for doing this a constraint you can do i think it's a good idea to do with batters is actually removing the plate Hmm. right so tell them strikes don't matter just swing you know at a pitch that's hittable for you if it comes over the inside corner that normally would be a strike don't swing there's no yeah, because sometimes you get overly focused on I have to swing at that because it's a strike, especially early in the count. That mm-hmm. might not be a good idea, right? It, it doesn't. It's not a, a hitable. It doesn't offer hitability for you for you because uh, it's not in a good spot uh, based on your action capabilities. The other thing you can do is, of course, try to change your action capabilities. By and I think that's where there's a lot of uh, opportunities to connect with the strength and conditioning side of things. Right, Mm. the batter can't get to the inside pitch. Maybe it's a flexibility issue, a strength issue, a balance issue, and if we could talk together, you know, maybe we can get some strength and conditioning exercises so that we can uh, create that as as an we can change our affordances. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So then that leads to the question of, in terms of kind of these these cues or ways to. Adapt. How much does say a specific cue like removing the plate or a more generalized cue uh, matter in terms of um, adjusting for these constraints and kind of improving those affordances?
2: Yeah, I think it's 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 kind of a almost it's sometimes it's just trial and error. Uh, kind of thing it's very individual you find it, that idea it might work with some um, I think you want to do I think it's good to think about it and this kind of goes back to what you were talking about as well Gary, uh, in two di- in two different directions right um, one of the ways that constraints help is the example you gave about answering a question create constraints can help you solve the degrees of freedom problem right when you when you have too many options <laughs> how do I swing a bat right what do I do Con- so they can do that they c- also, they can help you when you're stuck, right? So the problem isn't you finding a problem of choice. It's you're too stable. You're too rigid. uh, You're doing the same swing for every pitch. And and we want you to be more flexible and adaptable. So you can also, you can kind of look at it from those two different sides. So I think... um, and as I said, the, the constraints you use, I think it, it, I've been saying this, I think all, all week different ways is I don't think there's a cookbook like you just have to try different things. And I think it's good to talk to different coaches and see what they try and, and see what works for your athletes.
0: I guess this this question I've been asked before is how because I've talked about and encouraged a lot of people to dive into ecological dynamics um is because if you can understand the principles you can kind of pick and choose whatever you want and and so i guess my question rob is where where do people start you know to learn these principles cuz that was the question that i was asked was like okay so where do i start to go learn these principles
2: yeah, I think it, it is a tough thing because you know, you dive right into the head first in ecological dynamics theory, there's a lot of terminology and it's it's pulling in a lot of complicated stuff. Like dynam- dynamical systems is very complicated thing to learn if you really want to get in the weeds of it. So I
0: did not know how much math was involved it, with that.
2: It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I I'm not even, you know, I haven't really understood, you know, even a quarter of it myself. Um but so I think uh, a good way to start is to maybe on, start on more of the applied side and looking at examples. And actually, I think that the, I just interviewed uh, Chris Button, who's the author of the Dynamics mm-hmm. of Skill mm-hmm. Acquisition book, which is a really good book, especially the new version, because the they, second edition, they kind of mix application and theory a bit better, I think. And he admits it. Uh, he's saying that as well. That was one of the things they were specifically trying to do, because it is hard when you dive right in, the theory is going to kind of, and the terminology is going to kind of scare you away. Um, so I think, um, you know, just looking at the ways other people are doing it and, and doing it. So, um, so I think for me that that's helps. I, I think just doing a task analysis, you know, what is the hitter doing? What mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. is, is kind of the place to start? Um, I've I said this on another, to another person. I think if you're if you're not sure whether to jump in and how to jump into uh, uh, self organization and constraints, I think the the way to get you started, kind of the halfway house of that, is just variability, adding variability to practice um, a little bit. I think that's a low hanging fruit in a lot of uh, activities, and then you can see how that affects, and then that I think gives you ideas for how to do constraints. Um, uh, with, with starting with that. But I, for me, talking to other coaches, looking at examples um, is probably the best way to get started. And then once you really get into it and kind of think about it, then you, you know, I think you do need, if you really want to make the most of it and come up with your own ones, you do need to understand the principles behind it. But, but you're right. It is a tricky sometimes to start right with that.
0: Yeah. Cause I, I really want to encourage people to, to get a, a baseline understanding or like have a, have sort of an understanding of these principles in the framework, because I think what coaches will find is that the, the intuitive things that really coaches have done for a long time um, that have been successful, like some of this stuff, when, when you actually are applying a, a ecological approach um, it's, it's not necessarily like this completely new um brand new thing that, that you would end up doing it to me, when I look at what a lot of coaches are already doing, they would just end up doing more of certain things and less of others. Um, as, as opposed to, um, you know, just coming up with a brand new drill that is kind of like this new, this new sexy thing. Um, and so I guess that's, that's what I, I want to encourage why I want to encourage people to, to look into these ideas more is it'll just help enhance what you're already doing more than likely. And then it'll help you build and iterate and refine what you're doing.
2: Yeah, I, I agree totally. And I think Keith uh, Davids has been fantastic uh, on making that point, right? That coaches, a lot of this is just putting some theory and some kind of concepts on things coaches have been doing for a long time. And, you know, there's a lot of super smart coaches that, experience have developed these so but I agree with you it, it, it's not about us coming and saying here's a whole bunch of new training activities you've been doing it all wrong <laughs> throw away mm-hmm. everything it's like it's about yeah th- this is maybe kind of some theory on on why we think it works and why this doesn't and then so if you do right if you don't understand that then you can expand on what you're doing already in, in different ways I, I agree that's a great way to think about it
1: I guess then for me it leads to the question of for those coaches that are maybe going to try out this ecological uh dynamics, ecological approach and kind of try out some variability in types of things. When does it become a point where, you know, you want to try this out, but I, I kind of feel like some coaches may not be able to because, again, like the, the school that they work for, so on and so forth, like they're dedicated to you know, putting wins on the field and you don't want to run that risk of, you know, this variability in training where I feel like if it, if it is this kind of like trial and error system, um, this, they won't be able to really, really delve into kind of these, this variability training.
2: Yeah, it, it, that's a fair point. And, and I think, you know, we do need to think about, you know, I'm talking about this a little bit lately as periodization of all this, right? You need to know when to be doing this. You know, this is things you want to do far away from competition and more in the off season is when you get crazy and chaotic and super variable in practice. And when you get closer to games, you're right. You don't want to be throwing all this stuff at the athlete. But yeah, I think it is a commitment, you know, there's, it it usually means things are going to develop slower, but I think um, it, you know, if you can commit to it, it really will make, so I think, you know, it, it, I guess it depends how long it's kind of the long-term versus a short-term view of the athletes, right? The long-term it's going to make them more adaptable and functional. Yes, that maybe um, makes them do some basic things slower, but I think if you do it right, you can, you can. Get it close to the, what they're happening at the same rate, as long as you're right, you do it at the right time uh, relative to competition.
0: Do you want to kind of touch on like nonlinearity? Because, one, the reason I want to throw that in there right now is because I may at some point jump back to an earlier part of the conversation um, and make <laughs> this way more nonlinear. Um, but that's a key fundamental concept within an ecological dynamics systems approach. And that touches very much on what you were just talking about when it comes to periodization and time scales of learning.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, we're slowly coming to accept the fact that I think a lot of people that learning is both very individual, the rate at which occurs, and, and then mm-hmm. it doesn't follow this perfect path where you get better, 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 like in a straight, like the, the classic learning curve that we've all seen, right? things happen in a much more started, you know, you, sometimes you, you progress a little and then you go back. And I think baseball is a, a really great example of this, that, you know, an example of this that happens to hitters all the time is when, when you lose timing, right. <laughs> right. You mm-hmm. suddenly got everything and then you, you get shifted back um, somewhere in that early, you've lost it for some reason. Um, or you, you know, you're getting overly focused on your mechanics or things like that. So yeah. And the nonlinear idea is just that, you know, some, you know, Sometimes we have to go back to to earlier stage. You know, everything's not going to have this smooth progression where people are getting better and better every single practice session. Um, we, you know, we might expect you know two steps forward, one step back, and different patterns like that.
0: So to kind of go off of that, you know, as because you're also a professor and a teacher, how when when it comes to like the learning process and you know speaking on nonlinearity does that influence like how we should teach things? Cause like very much so like in, you know, cause I'm currently taking a perception class. It's you kind of proceed in learning all the nitty gritty details about, um, you know, the, the anatomy and how the systems and the processes, and then you begin to, and then after you do all that, then you go to the application. And I guess the question is when it comes to learning is, How does nonlinearity? What does that actually look like if we were talking about practice design or you know progressions, so to speak?
2: Yeah, I think the and I've you know in in terms of education, you know, I I fully admit, you know, having been in, we uh, teach a lot of times we teach in a manner that makes it easy to assess a student, not in a mm-hmm. manner that mm-hmm. uh, makes it best for them to learn, <laughs> right? <laughs> so giving you regurgitating information and following a linear, yeah. I think the, the biggest thing, you know, that I think this linear uh, change in the nonlinear that changes for me in the ecological view is kind of this rejection of the old idea that you ha- you, you have to learn technique first before you can put someone in a mm. context where they have to make decisions and, and act, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, Oh, you can't let a kid try to dribble around opponent in soccer until they know how to dribble around cones, right? So it's this idea, there's this linear path from basic movement patterns and technique to decision, more complex decision making. So you have to put everything together. And I think in ecological, we've kind of gotten rid of that idea and, and decided, you know, that it's better to learn the, the quote unquote techniques at the same time in context, in a decision making mm-hmm. context to make mm-hmm. them more adaptable and functional. So that's the biggest single kind of message for me with, in, with regards to, to non-linearity. And I, I, I think that applies to your example with the, the class, you know, and a lot of us and some of us in, in the school I work in, we move to more project based learning. So mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. give you a project and learn. you learn the concepts while you're making or building something. Instead of having to teach them all to you on a chalkboard or a whiteboard before you are able to try to apply them, because what
0: I find with with that approach is that as you get going on something, you begin to ask questions. Are there problems you need to solve? And as I'm thinking about it, this 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 encapsulates like ecological dynamics is that it it guides your search process. As you encounter a problem, it it guides your search for information. And that's kind of how you begin to learn and understand the importance of things. Because I think if if we take more of a linear progression approach, we don't really understand the meaning and the value of things until we um, actually jump ahead and like encounter a problem. And as we go back and we that actually helps um, guide our search process. Um, and so I think that's that's really fascinating kind of what you were um, describing there. Um, also, too, that the fact that I wonder if that's also true in the sporting context of the reason that we do things in more of a linear manner is it's easier to measure um, because baseball now is going um, such in the direction that it's really focused on measuring things um, and one of the criticisms that I at least have heard at least um, of the ecological approach or people within the community is that they they aren't super big on measuring things because it's really hard to in some sense. but if 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 ecological dynamics is kind of founded on dynamic systems theory, which is very mathematical, you would think that it's possible to measure stuff like this and You know, one of the things too that I think maybe is worth um, having you, Rob, explain, because that's why I have it in our um, image logo, is the um, idea of the uncontrolled manifold hypothesis.
2: Okay. Um, Yeah. So I'll I'll start. So a couple of points are, you know, I, I like the point you were making at the start. Yeah. I think in the way that we think of ecological psychology, so we're not teaching you the solutions. We're teaching Mm -hmm. you how to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have that all the time. Like I teach stats and um, Mm. sometimes students will come up to me that work in a project. They're like, how do you do this type of analysis? And I'll have to Google it. And they'll look Mm -hmm. at me like, you don't know it. And I'm like, no, (laughs) but I know (laughs) how to do it once I look at it. Right. So I've learned Uh how to learn, right? Not I haven't memorized the, the formula. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, measurement, I think measurement, yeah, no, I'm, we're, I, we're all for measurement and measuring things. I think the point about measurement that's a bit of an issue in ecological psychology is because we've accepted that things are going to be very individual and nonlinear, a lot of the traditional things, way we take means of things and put mm-hmm. people in groups are not going to work. Right, uh, the way we tr- traditionally uh, analyze data um, c- is not effective when you expect all everyone to be a bit different. So, so that's a bit challenging. Uh, so, how do
0: you address that challenge? Is there do people have some ideas on how they would um, analyze, like, account for that?
2: The um, the yeah the so but there's both. Ways in which you can do it quantitatively, like express things individually. And also, I think we've come to a larger acceptance in, you know, in the research field. I in in sports science and things of the value of case studies, right? Hmm. The value of just looking at one individual person and seeing how they learn and how they change instead of having to have 50 people and calculating the mean. Uh, which doesn't really represent any one of them. <laughs> it's just kind of a mm-hmm. abstract. So, so I think those are kind of the. But there are some things we can we can do on an individual level. Um, but it is a tricky. It's a tricky problem. Um, it's not as easy to. You can't slap the simple statistics you learn in in school um, to the ecological psychology. It makes it a bit tricky.
1: Yeah, because then, then that kind of leads into the thought of what you mentioned earlier of that case study where. I think now now we're starting to see at least in the baseball realm uh kind of comparing comparing a certain player to the average. So uh kind of think of like uh, those those plus stats where we say like 100 is average and we're comparing, you know, player X to the average which is in this case 100. So I think that kind of leads into the process of you know how can we compare one person to the kind of whole of the whole of you know your study or the whole of in this case uh the rest of major league baseball
2: yeah i think i think we're that's a good point i think we're learning uh some important points about using those things i think part of it is taking uh some of the numbers are kind of misleading you you, when you have one number you you just ha- you have to dig a bit deeper. I know one example I know that people are f- coming aware of is with launch angle. Like looking at the mean launch angle of a Hitler is really not very informative, right? Cuz if you have two swings, one with a launch angle of minus mi- of 0 or minus 10 and one with a launch angle of 50, those are both terrible swings, right? But their average is going to be nice. <laughs> um, whereas if you have two of 25, that's much better hitting right so we need to and so i think but i think we could have the same thing when we compare an in, an individual to some mean you know maybe we need to dig a bit deeper and look at more factors you know so, so how, when do they hit it hard you know um, maybe they, their average exit velocity is not up to the league standard but you know when uh, you know getting more in context of how they're swinging and um, you know, so I, I think that, I think that's part of it. And then just looking at one number sometimes.
1: Yeah. Cause I also feel like, uh, especially since you brought up lawn, that launch angle, like I feel like in those cases, like medians and modes are definitely something that's more attributable. Um, because, you know, for guys that want to hit the ball hard in the in the air to generate quote barrels, um, I feel like that having those uh, frequencies is more important than saying average. Because like you said, like if someone has a very high launch angle and then a very low launch angle, if you average that out, it's going to look very good. And then the same can be said for exit velocity. So in turn, it could actually look like a quote-unquote barrel. But actually, there was just two completely different swings.
2: Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I know I even heard you know people including Bunsen like exit velocity <laughs> calculations for hitters and things like that. So obviously we need to kind of do it. You, you got to, you can't take it completely just the numbers, right? You got to consider the other factors too. Yeah.
0: One thing that to, to kind of jump back just a little bit to go back to scaling information, because um, this is one ad that I wanted to to have before was in watching, I was like, if we're talking about the T, so to speak, and this is when we're talking about like really youth athletes. How, in what ways, do you think? Or first to to say, like one of the things I noticed was um, uh, I, I was watching a young kid um, try to hit a ball. Like they were trying to teach him. I think he was like three to to hit a ball, but he he basically we would they throw the ball to him and swing and miss. And he wasn't really paying attention, and but when you put it on a tee, he would actually hit it and like be more interested. But I almost wonder if that was just because he was missing it that the the um, dad and the other players went to that. But if we're thinking about scaling um, scaling the information, so to speak, what if instead we you threw him a bigger ball and he had a bigger bat and he actually then would more likely hit the ball. And then when, you know, the, the parents and people get excited, he, he begins to associate those two things together. And I think too, that was a conversation. I don't know if it was that you had with somebody on a, a podcast or um, if that was somebody else, but still like how how important it is for the athlete to begin to make connections like that. And I guess what ways could, you know, this approach be applied to youth athletes um, in a baseball context?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great question. And yeah, well, baseball is, you know, it's tough when you miss, (laughs) sometimes you don't know why, right? Did I swing Mm -hmm. too early, too late, too high, too low. Um, But I think your example is a really good one about, you know, this is why, you know, the coach, you know, ecological psychology, there's still a huge role for the coach, being observant, knowing what to look for, when to step in and how. And so I think that's a great example. You know, you're trying to throw a kid a ball through they're, they're missing it. You're right. Maybe they're not paying attention to it at all. So you can add are right constraints of the bigger bat, you know, suddenly they get a hit mm-hmm. and they start paying attention or maybe give them some kind of task where you put a number on the ball or, you know, or, or something mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you add something to kind of get them to focus on it more. Um Yeah. So I think exploring other things that keep it more representative instead of jumping right to the T, like the T is obviously a big constraint. And um, Mm -hmm. I just put out an episode today with uh, Nick Winkleman and I were talking about, Mm -hmm. he was talking about Mm -hmm. teaching his son to ride a bike with training wheels and, you know, his son, you know, Why would you ever want to give up the training wheels, right? Once you can ride, and why would you ever want to not hit off a tee? It's way easier, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, there's no incentive to to try to hit. Um, So it's you have to be kind of careful about being no. And then it obviously it's a very different. Kind of task, hitting a stationary ball off a tee, than hitting a yeah, a moving ball. So, yeah. So I think looking at why, analyzing why they're missing, and trying to change things about it to to right. And but you're right, the motivational confidence factor is something we overlook a lot too.
0: And then I guess uh, sort of one last big question from my end. Um, I'll let Robert. You should also have one final question before we wrap up. But to to kind of loop back to decision making. What is kind of your view of decision making, and is it a separate process from action? And how does you know this perception-action coupling that you're so big on um, intertwine with decision making? Are you know is you know what are some misconceptions that people may have about decision making in your um, viewpoint?
2: Yeah, I, can, I think the biggest misconception, you know, in terms of the way I believe, I believe, you know, kind of the ecological view that decision emerges and from kind of action of, and baseball is a great example. If you stood there and did absolutely no action at all, right, you, you didn't move at all, you waited till you, okay, that's a curveball so you're just perceiving, then you started the swing from nothing, (laughs) you would Mm -hmm. never hit a pit, I guarantee you, right? Baseball is way too fast. You have to act while acting and perceiving are happening at the same time. And the decision to whether to keep... So actually in baseball, you you swing every time, right? You have to start the movement of generating Mm -hmm. a swing every single pitch, unless you're obviously taking one. Um, So... The decision is just going to kind of emerge out of your your perceiving the play of the pitch and and trying to recognize what type of pitch it is and controlling the swing. And then at some point, you're going to decide you're going to, quote unquote, decide. So it's not this kind of binary, discrete event that now I'm going to swing. Now I'm going to act right. You're Mm -hmm. acting and perceiving the whole time. And at some point. The action is going to continue and it, you, you we can call it a swing, you know, this to finish or sometime or you're going to stop it, you, you know, really late, mm-hmm. like a check swing or early and, and, and enough to, to completely stop it. So so that's kind of the way that I think a decision making and, and we do in the ecological approach that's this, disc- it's something that comes out of this continuous coupling of perception and action, not this kind of linear perceive, uh, perceive, decide, act, right? Um, where mm-hmm. it happens very discreetly.
1: Yeah. And then kind of building off of that is what's something throughout your career that kind of changed your thoughts in terms of perception and action when it came to, you know, you learned something about perception in, say, a different field and action and then applied it and thought in a different way when it comes to, say, baseball.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think of a, if I, from a different field, um, I kind of, I, I guess, yeah, studying kind of other fields, like I've done, done research in driving, um, aviation with some really highly skilled pilots. Um, I've kind of seen the way it's kind of it's very similar information, very simple information sources that people use to, to couple their, to control their actions kind of, uh, convince me that, you know, that's what I, that's what I should be looking for. And these, these patterns of movement and things like that. So, yeah, I think that that's, and then, then just, you know, thinking about this kind of, uh, exploit this ecological approach where things that kind of emerge really kind of changed my thinking about it in, in the baseball swing. So instead of looking for some discrete event, uh, that's where people swung. That's where this happened. Looking at it as more as an evolving project uh, process really helped. Yeah.
0: Do you want to give an example with driving or flying? Or I know there was a study too on like walking um, and how, you know, the what you kind of like learned through uh, perceptually. Cause I know you were talking once on an episode about, um, driving and decisions that were made for like left-hand turns. Um, I wonder if you could potentially speak a little bit on that.
2: Yeah. I was talking to, I did a study once where I wanted, so left turns in, in are where a lot, a lot of accidents happen. People seem to turn when they shouldn't, right? They turn and there's a car right there <laughs> or, or they, and so I, I tried to do a study where I looked at, okay, when do people decide to turn? What's, it, what's the information, what's the the tau the from the car, how far away it is. <laughs> I could not find a point when they decided because it, 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 it seemed to matter how, what happened before then. Also, uh, there's a good pedestrian study too. When people walk, walk up to a road and decide whether to cross, it's completely different than when they're standing there and decide to cross kind of the information's different and 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 so yeah so I I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't find this again this discrete point it seemed like they were interacting with the other vehicles in the road the whole time as they went up to the intersection and then did the, just you know the turn emerged or, or not yeah
0: I mean because what I took away from that is so often, the way hitting coaches have predominantly approached hitters is that they actually want to minimize their movements. You know, like, oh, your swing has too many moving parts and like is too noisy. Like, simplify it. Let's get your movements really, really simplified. And what I wonder is, like, at least for me, like that that made it harder to hit. If, uh, in my opinion, I think oftentimes that overly constrains the athlete. Two, in such a way that it makes it harder for them to perceive what's going on. And so from that, I've shifted and taken that to, to actually say it to athletes who are struggling, like, hey, think about trying to move and use movement to help you perceive or like better see the ball. Um, and I think that may be why we see different athletes have pre-pitch movements. Um is it actually allows them to perceive information better? Um, I I, I'm just kind of curious if, you know, how that, you know, from what you know from, uh, psychology and optical flow, like what is the difference between having optical flow, um, when you're moving versus when you're, um, stationary?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. In, um, so, for one thing, you know, changing your kind of angle—you know—we're we're sensitive mm. to information in different parts of our visual field more or less, right? And we're less, we're, ser- we're more sensitive to certain type of information in our periphery, more sensitive to others in our central vision. So, kind of sh- changing your head, moving your head around when you're hitting um, is can be. Um, you know, uh, that's, that's taboo. The, that to, yeah. But, uh, you know, it actually gives, and then there's work by, you know, I meant, the uh, there's studies of cricket and things showing that, you know, we can't actually generate eye movements fast enough to follow the ball all the mm-hmm. way. So you really mm-hmm. need to move your head to be, to follow, to keep your, keep it in your central gaze. So, so yeah, I think like that. And, and then the, just the movement I, you know, I've been learning, you know, the work, the paper I, I mentioned, I'm writing up now, I'm looking at, you know, the movement in the swing and the adjusting it for different parts of the swing for different pitch speeds and, and for, you know, the ongoing adjustments seem to be what really distinguishes really good hitters, right? So, it's not mm-hmm. producing the exact same swing every time. It's having, you know, what you know I call functional variability. Uh, it's changes in the swing from swing to swing that are help you time up the pitch and adjust for the different pitches. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think restricting, <laughs> restricting if we know if we there's something really bad and obvious. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, I think you have to be really careful because it, those kind of differences and movements could be functional, like you say. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, to kind of wrap up what we normally do is kind of ask, are there any sort of resources that, or things that, um, or actually I want to ask this question first, you know, given the fact that we're all kind of sequestered away at the moment, what has, what is something that has kind of stood out to you in this time? Um, like what has it allowed you to do or what have you seen emerge as a result of that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, uh, um, I guess from from me personally, I uh, something I've been meaning to do for a long time is kind of do. I've been starting these journal clubs online and Mm -hmm. uh, getting a bunch of people to come in and talk about an article, and and, you know, I've kind of meaning to do it for a long time, and this just the time. I'm like, okay, I'll just do it. And it's turned out to, you know, lots of interesting interactions. And I think it's been fun, you know, the one you guys participated in with me. And um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's uh, given an opportunity, um, you know, and I think, uh, I think other thing, you know, the guys, you know, you were on the call, you guys at Emergence talking about yesterday, Mm -hmm. I think it's really getting people to think about representative design a lot, right? Mm -hmm. When you're at home in your backyard, how can I train now in a way that's actually going to be, you know, a, a helpful. And because I, so I can't just do what I always done. You know, I've got to think about ways to be creative and, you know, adjust things to, to be representative. So I think that's something that's, you know, kind of everybody's <laughs> faced with now in this kind of sporting mm-hmm. context.
0: And to kind of follow up with that, what kind of resources um, would you recommend for people?
2: So are uh, you kind of expanding? Are you thinking like if they were interested in kind of the ecological yeah, view? And, or
0: or just in general, like it doesn't necessarily have to be on, um, you know, the ecological approach or motor, motor learning. It could just be anything in general that you would recommend people um, check out or read about, um, listen to, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I think there's, you know, a lot of good resources out there. You know, some of the um, – I think some of the books and things on like embodiment embodied perception mm. and stuff, I think is a good way to get you thinking about kind of the differently about some of these ideas. Um, some of them are, some of the ideas are so ingrained in us, you know, the idea that our brains, a computer and computes mm. things and, um that i think it, it kind of you have to it takes a while to kind of shift your thinking and, and, and it, you get, you know not necessarily have to you know there's nothing wrong with accepting that view but if you're interested in kind of seeing what the other side is i think that's kind of a good mm-hmm. easy way you know um you know uh, one of my collaborators cyan Bilock has a good a book—I uh, can't remember the exact uh, what the body knows about the mind or something <laughs> along those lines mm-hmm. that she's written on that. I think that's like a good good way to get you kind of ease you in. They're they're more easy reading than reading about <laughs> specification and affordances and everything. So mm-hmm. so um, that, that's that's one thing I think I would I would recommend to people that are interested in, in this kind of stuff uh, look at.
0: Well, Rob, um, I appreciate you coming on. If people want to connect with you, um, where, where can they, how can they do that? And are there with that, are there any other resources and projects that you personally have worked on and have out there?
2: Yeah. So I guess there's kind of three. So, so I, I mean, as I, most people probably, I have my podcast, the perception action podcast, and I have everything related to that at the website perceptionaction.com so i have the all the podcast information as i i think i mentioned i'm doing these journal club videos so uh in a couple of weeks i'm gonna have uh, keith davids come on for a mm. conversation with me so who's one of the lead you know the highest people, <laughs> people up in ecological dynamics who does the most work on that area so um you know check that stuff out if you're interested in resources. Um, if you have a direct question about something, you always email me uh, that, my at my robgray And my Twitter, um, w- what I do a lot on Twitter is I post links to a lot of studies that I find on skill acquisition and motor learning. Not necessarily good ones, just <laughs> related ones. So if you're looking mm-hmm. for just uh, keep up on the research in, in there, you can, you can check out my, my Twitter profile. Uh, on that. Um, and then as I said, I have some, what, what what's, what's your it? Twitter handle? It's uh, shaky weights. It's so okay. weird. <laughs> um, the, um, the, uh, and then, uh, the biggest thing I'm working on is a couple of papers. Um, um well, I'm, one I'm working on now is I did in 2017. I did this training study where I've trained batters in various different ways um, then measured some things after training and then also I followed them for five years to see if they got drafted made it to college and we found some good effects in the original paper and now I'm going back and we have a bunch of force plate data and movement data and seeing oh, uh, why wow. did they get better what changed and, and some it's pretty cool stuff coming out so I'm hoping to get that that done. <laughs> it's turning it's pretty bare of a analysis but I think it's going to be interesting.
1: Yeah I'm looking forward to it definitely. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff is uh, huge um, nowadays.
0: Man, it makes me want to ask so many more questions, but uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time, Rob. I really appreciate it, um, you coming on and having a discussion uh, with us today.
1: Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, guys. It's fun.